I love singing that song right before I'm going to preach. And then again, after I get done with it, before I preach, I just kind of want to just lay out in front of the Lord. Man, oh man. True confessions this morning. I have an aversion to using the word missions. The reason I do so is because it is such a mercurial term. Isn't that a good word? Mercurial? Problem is that unless you're about my age, which is 42, give or take 20 years, <laughs> um, you know, the, the EPA and OSHA and all that, they came in. What they did effectively in the world little side rant here, is they took away all our fun. Okay? You know what I mean? Well, one of those fun things that uh, they took away was that when I was in, like, junior high and into high school, finding an old thermometer with mercury in it, okay, it was like, woo, all right, man, got a new toy, because there were such cool things that you could do with it. You could actually, and I never figured out how the guys did this, but you could take like a dime, and you could, I guess, put it in the mercury, and the dime would kind of become plated with the mercury. It would be real shiny, and that was kind of cool. But the really cool thing about mercury, and you wouldn't know this, right, because it's been taken away. Now you mention mercury, and they start calling in hazmat teams. I went over to... Uh, to a Home Depot just this, this summer and brought in an old thermostat with a mercury thing in it, you know, and they were like, oh, whoop, 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 and SWAT team started coming down and everything. Yeah, because it's a heavy metal and it's poisonous and it's dangerous. Yeah, we spit on danger. So we'd take this mercury and we'd pour it out on the, the science tables were always the best, you know, they were dark black. And so you see this, this little silver bead of mercury and I'm, I'm actually getting to a point here on the definition of mercurial. So if you would just like take your finger or something, which you shouldn't do, and press down on it or attempt to, the mercury ball would split up into just these, all these little bitty BBs and go everywhere. But then you could kind of slide them together and they would all come and form one ball again. And it was just so much fun. Of course, we were killing ourselves. And as heavy metal poisoning, it tends to, to all kind of concentrate in the brain, which explains a lot about my generation. But the term mercurial comes from that idea that you can't, you can't pin mercury down. It just... Well, see, that is how I view the term missions. Meaning, it has so many different meanings to so many different people that when one person uses the word... The person using it and the person hearing it, both of them assume that they know what each other means when they use the word, which in my experience is that that's not usually the case. So now you know why the title or titles of my message this morning. We've been looking at Mark's record of the historical events surrounding the life of Jesus. To me, and, and I mean, I know better, and I know you know better, there's something diminishing 
when I just say the life of Jesus, because there are too many liberal theologians and all out there that talk about the historical Jesus and the life of Jesus. But understand, and I know you understand this, that I'm not talking about some historical Jesus. I'm not talking about the good prophet, the kind man, the itinerant preacher who preached peace, love, dove, and all of that sort of stuff. I am talking about Jesus, Emmanuel, God incarnate, God in human form, roaming the earth. And we are reading Mark's record of his life. Well, last week, and then kind of just backtracking a little bit to bring us up to speed, we saw that Jesus makes his trek back to his boyhood town. And if you understood last week's message, we're really caught off guard by it, or at least we should have been, with the way it all goes down and Jesus going back to his hometown. And if you've ever watched any season of American Idol or even watched the end of it, when they get down to the final three contestants, the producers take those final three soon-to-be stars and they take them all back to their town, their hometowns of roots where they have this massive celebration for each one. And there's the obligatory limousine transports, and of course this is all on film. There's the obligatory TV spots and the radio, you know, things in the morning where they're there with the radio personality and they're talking and being interviewed. And then there's the grand celebrity day where the mayor comes out and proclaims, you know, the official so-and-so day in our town and presents the key to the city to the soon-be star. And it's a big deal. Well, if you've never seen it, we're going to attempt again. This didn't work first service. We're going to attempt to give you a taste of it. After Brent's video, I'm not too optimistic. actually went on to win uh, last year, so that was just a fluke on that. Well, we don't have a YouTube clip of Jesus' hometown visit, but we do have benefit of the God-inspired account of Mark who told us that when Jesus went back to his hometown, and you want to talk about celebrity, he didn't get a big parade. He didn't get thronging crowds cheering his name. Nobody came out and presented him with the key to the city. In fact, what Jesus got was skepticism that morphed into full disdain. And you know what the problem was? The problem was that the people in Jesus' hometown watched Jesus grow up. And watching Jesus grow up was the issue. The people of his hometown who watched him grow up watched him grow up. And the problem is, is that he wasn't anyone extraordinary. He wasn't talking at eight weeks. He wasn't reciting the Hebrew alphabet at three months. At nighttime, he wasn't regaling his siblings with bedtime stories of creation at age three. The problem was, is that he was painfully normal. And so instead of accolades, their response was, isn't, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? And we're supposed to believe this is the son of God? This is our long-awaited Messiah? 
You see, their familiarity with Jesus as a child engendered unbelief and disrespect. And in verse 6 of chapter 6, which is where we left off last week, Mark makes the note that even Jesus wondered about their unbelief. Actually, the word there is Jesus was shocked, taken aback by the unbelief of the people in his own hometown. Well, then the publishers of our Bibles keep the next sentence in our Bibles as part of verse 6 and part of the story that we're just finishing. But the second half of verse 6 seems more likely to begin a new pericope a new passage. And what I want you to remember this morning, because this is sometimes helpful in the scriptures, is that punctuation in our Bibles, chapter headings in our Bibles, are not inspired. Okay, Those are inserted many, many centuries later when publishers came to the fore and they wanted to make things more readable and more popular and thereby people would buy more Bibles. So contextually, it seems better to let the second part of verse 6 be the first part of verse 7 as Mark introduces a new vignette in the life of Jesus. So let's look at the second part of verse 6 or 6b being connected to verse 7 instead of verse 7 starting the new story, which, by the way, just after the fact, I noticed is exactly the way the Greek New Testament lays it out. Mark 6 beginning of the second part of verse 6 and verse 7. And Jesus was going around the villages teaching. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now this is the fourth time that unclean spirits are mentioned in the Gospel of Mark. The first three pertain directly to Jesus' authority over them. But now here... Jesus is deputizing the disciples to carry, if you will, his authority over demonic spirits, meaning it's not an inherent part of their being as it is for Jesus. Rather, it is a delegated power enabling the disciples to act on behalf of the Savior, not unlike today's police deputies pulling someone over on behalf of the sheriff. Now, as we proceed through this passage, I want you to note something. What we are reading is a unique occurrence in history. Let me say that again. What we are reading is a unique occurrence in history. God incarnate, not just some Joe Schmo. But God incarnate, God in human form, is commissioning his disciples. And God incarnate is giving them explicit direct orders for the mission, or better, I would like to say, the work at hand. So can we acknowledge that this particular story is unique? And I'm making a point of it because it's important. Why is it important? 
because a common misstep among teachers and preachers and study leaders, both formal and informal, is to take what the Bible often describes to have taken place at this time in history and at this time in the formation of the church, and they make it normative for all ages and epochs in church history. This is the singular reason why the book of Acts has been so misconstrued over the ages, taking the occurrences of what happened at a very distinct time in salvation history and making them a mandatory pattern for all times throughout the church history and church age. So here we are, and it's time for God to launch the fledgling crew to partake of the mission or again better, the work at hand, which would become the broad paradigm, or now it would become the broad pattern for the church throughout the world, throughout history. And it's later summarized in the Gospels in what is called the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, 19, and 20, we read it. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And remember that I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. The Great Commission was given to the universal church. The Great Commission was given to the universal church, not the local church. Now, if I stopped right there, you would rightly have some important questions. And your eyes might go a little crossed, but stay with me. I am not saying that the local church is not to be involved in the Great Commission. And so after the fashion of Paul paraphrasing him, I emphatically saying, nay, nine, yet, yet, nix, nepa, megenata. No, I am not saying that the local church is not to be involved in the Great Commission. What I am saying is that the Great Commission is the work of the universal church. Well, what is the universal church? The universal church is all local churches throughout the history of the church, throughout the ages, working together cumulatively to bring about the evangelization of the entire world. But you see, the Great Commission is not the responsibility in totality of each and every local church to have their heart and their soul and their feet and their money in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts. They may, but it is not incumbent upon the local church to be involved in the totality of that great commission. This is why, just as a very practical example, we do live out here what we believe. And it was either last year, I'm not sure if it was meaning this budget year, if it was last budget year, but we got word of a very reliable, credible ministry, a church actually, that was operating in Syria. It was either Syria or Lebanon now, I'm forgetting. 
And we happen to know of that church because of another church that's involved in the Evangelical Free Church here in the New England district. And that pastor is very credible and very reliable, and we know him and we trust him. And so this church sent $10,000 to that church to send to the other local church in Syria or Lebanon to go about fulfilling the Great Commission. But we ourselves, you see, other than giving money, we're not part and parcel of that. And I don't mean to diminish that. I'm just trying to give you a flavor here that what I'm saying is not really heretical. It only might sound like it a little bit. But that hasn't really been the understood pattern throughout church history. Instead, what has been the pattern in modern church history concerning the Great Commission is that every individual Bible-believing church generally comes to the missions table, so to speak, under the pressure of thinking that each and every church in existence is responsible for personally fulfilling the Great Commission, meaning Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts. But let's look at reality here from a practical standpoint. Sixty percent of churches in America are 99 people or less, 60%. Churches of this size, with very few exceptions, face constant financial struggles, which, like it or not, do in fact shape the priorities of the ministries of those churches. And in a few minutes, I'll give you a compelling example of that. So the reality is, is that these small, already underfunded churches under pressure from a misunderstanding of the Great Commission, they have their obligatory six missionaries, usually meaning cross-cultural and or foreign missionaries, to whom they send $100 a quarter each, while their pastoral family is not making it financially, is either having to be bivocational or even with that, is still not making it financially, having to scrounge through the church's missionary closet to find wearable clothing for their children and then helping themselves to the church's own food pantry when there's anything edible and not out of date to be found in it. And all during this time, the churches that are so underfunded because they're so small and so overextended because of a misunderstanding of this, and there's other misunderstandings, but they go on hosting their monthly bean hole supper dinners, hopefully trying to clear enough profit, if you will, by doing those dinners to pay for the winter oil for the furnace that itself is being held together by duct tape and bailing wire. As far as the physical plant of the church building, nothing has been done to the church building or the property in over a decade because, again, there's no money. And so on the rare occasion that a visitor does happen to stumble through the door of the church, the sight, the smells, the noise of the three children, who, by the way, probably brought by the grandparents, coming through the cardboard-like petition separating the worship space from the child care space, ensure that a return of the visiting family is highly unlikely. And here this church's mission obligation, right there in their own Jerusalem, has been essentially non-existent for decades. 
And I can tell you on good authority that if Pastor Ben, Ben Franklin, was sitting right here, right now, he'd be going, Amen, Amen, because this is the situation that he is currently dealing with in his first church. So Jesus knows it's time to get his twelve going into their Jerusalem. And he sends them out, dua, dua, in the original language, meaning it's a, it's a colloquialism, meaning basically two by two or in pairs. Now, concerning this point, how many of you have heard sermons over the years based on this passage and the one concerning the 70, because they're essentially the same, about the importance of having a mate or a partner along with you as you do the Lord's work? And all of the warnings are given about the dangers of being the Lone Ranger, of going out and not being accountable to anyone, of not having someone to hold you up when you're down and you not being, them not having anybody to hold them up when they're down. And to be sure, there is wisdom in all of that. But here's the question. Is that really what is paramount in Jesus' mind as he is sending out the first mission team of 12 into the world. Well, to begin, let's remember that the Gospel of Mark is written primarily to a Gentile audience. And this, by the way, is another helpful axiom of interpretation of the Bible that may be helpful and that is having an awareness of to whom something is being written. In this case, you see, the Gentile hearers and readers of Mark's gospel account operate in a different world, so to speak, than the Jews. They operate with an entirely different worldview, namely a Gentile worldview. And so a different set of rules, if you will, for life and for worship and for everything else. And so Gentiles would be clueless concerning Jewish history and concerning Jewish law, particularly Mosaic law, as it's mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Let's look at that. Beginning in verse 2. If there is found in your midst in any of your towns, and this is just by way of illustration, by the way, there's many more examples like this of the same, the same point which the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, then you shall inquire thoroughly. Behold, if it is true that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out the man or that woman who has done this evil deed to your, in your gates, and you shall stone them to death. Now here it is. On the evidence, this is, we're talking now about their judicial code, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of only one witness. So, in order to satisfy the requirement of a legal, meaning an acceptable, and a trustworthy testimony, there had to be at least... Two witnesses. That is what is paramount in the mind of Jesus as he's sending these out and later on. And also, just as an interesting side note, in Revelation chapter 11, in verse 3, Jesus sends out not one witness, but two witnesses. 
preceding his return and all that those witnesses are there to accomplish. Well, the disciples are being sent out to be witnesses after hanging around with Jesus. What are they doing while they're hanging around with Jesus? Well, they're listening to him. They're talking to him. And they're basically just observing. They're watching how he acts in various life settings. Because all of this is what comprised their theological training. And at this point, the master gives them their marching orders, verses 8 and 9. And Jesus instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey. Nothing except a mere staff, a stick. No bread, no bag, no money in their belt. Oh, they could wear sandals. And he added, and do not even put on two tunics. Now, common sense says this is not a wise course of action. Remember what I said a moment ago, though? This is a unique occurrence. So we're not talking about common sense here. We are talking about divine command here. Meaning what? Well, for example, meaning that some well-intentioned, overzealous individual or individuals who take off for parts far and wide or not even so far and wide with nothing but the clothes on their backs telling everyone that, but they are going forth on faith, trusting the Lord's going to take care of them. They need to be questioned. Remember, this is a unique occurrence. And I'm thinking of a very real situation in our lives. The guy's name was Peter from our church in Seattle. He would get up and leave his family each morning, leave them in a place of what I'll say precariously sitting on a life precipice. Why? Because Peter refused employment, insisting that he was called to go stand on street corners witnessing to people. And he was trusting that the Lord would take care of the rest. All the rent, the utilities, the food, the clothing, the gas, everything that it requires to raise a family, which the Lord, in hindsight, clearly wasn't doing. He needed to be questioned and counseled, and he was. You see, the creator of the universe who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, as well as everything else, personally giving a group of specific people, in this case the disciples, in a very specific time with very specific instructions for their mission is somewhat different than a man refusing work so that he can stand on a street corner and proclaim Jesus, presuming that God has his back. You see, living by presumption is not the same thing as living by faith. And so, as with the book of Acts, we cannot ignore the salvation historical epic in which we are reading these passages. It's too easy 
otherwise, you see, to presume to transfer it, not just in the general principles there, but in the minutiae, transferring it to a different salvation historic setting thousands of years, say up till today, removed from the times when God walked the earth and God personally commissioned his followers to do his bidding. Now, let me talk out of both sides of my mouth. Out of the first side of my mouth, when God tells you to do something against what you would consider is better judgment or common sense, you better still do it. Let me talk out of the other side of my mouth now. When you think or presume that God is telling you something that is against better judgment and common sense, you better seek much counsel beginning with your spouse, if you're married, and with a reliable, trustworthy friend or friends or pastor, if you're not married. Here's another axiom for life. It is doubtful that the Lord will tell you to do something seemingly a little crazy without also informing your spouse and giving the two of you two unified hearts and a unified faith. And that means unified hearts and a unified faith, not being browbeaten into submission to one view or the other. Another big difference. In all of Barbara and my major decisions of life, every one of them, we were both drawn to the same conclusions even before we ever talked to each other about them. Let me give you that real-life example I told you about earlier. Barbara and I, we thought, were informed from on high, I won't go into that, that we would be coming to this church before this church ever knew about it. The two of us, independently of each other, just, I don't know, we just had that sense, that confidence that this is where we were going to be going to pastor and minister. Well, as the process unfolded, you can imagine our surprise, veritable shock, I dare say, when we were informed by this church that, in fact, they were bringing somebody else to come on out here and to candidate, which means spend the weekend, a few days with the church and all, to get to know each other. And when you get to that point in the process, it's usually a done deal. And so when we got that call, I have to say we honestly were set back on our heels a bit. But at the same time, we know God doesn't make mistakes, even if we do. And so if the church was calling someone else, well... (laughs) Obviously, Barbara and I both misread what we thought the Lord was saying to us. It wasn't that we didn't trust the Lord. We trusted the Lord completely. What we didn't trust, or at least I'll only speak for myself, what I didn't trust was my interpretation of what I thought the Lord was saying. And so when we got word that they were bringing somebody else out, it's like, okay, boy, we misread that one. So I continued to pursue other ministry opportunities. In the area. Well, it was 
quite a few weeks later, I'd say even maybe a month, uh, not a month, like two or three months later at least, because I had actually started candidating at another church in suburban Chicago. And in this, because I was local, it was a six-week period. And we were at the end of that six weeks. And if they had called me, I was ready to take that church. And we got the call on Sunday night, and they didn't want me. <laughs> Idiots. Um, oh, did, did that come out? <laughs> it wasn't very long, if I remember right, after that situation that all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this church calls again. And they tell us that the man that they brought out and they had their weekend with he and his wife and everything else, it turned out that they didn't want him. Smart people. And so they had asked us if we would consider coming on out. Now, we learned later that we, in fact, were their first pick, or at least that's what they were selling us on. Now, we learned later that they were their, we were their first pick to come out and spend time with them. But you see, the problem was young couple, three children in tow, family of five versus an older couple, no children in the home. The church was small, 35, 37, 38 people. They were already financially strapped, paying only half of the mortgage on the building, which sits over on Rice Rips Road. They did so with the good graces of the Evangelical Free Church of America, who was holding the note on the property, so it wasn't like they were doing anything untoward. But the point is, they didn't call us first because they knew they couldn't afford to support us. But Barbara and I knew that we were coming out here before we ever even got into any kind of details about support or anything else, and it was a non-issue to us. So apparently Barbara and I hadn't misread the Lord after all. And the rest is, as they say, history. So here the disciples are sent out with minimal concern for their daily necessities, which the Lord addresses now in the next text. Verse 10. He said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. And any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. Hmm. Now remember again that we're not talking here about the personnel director of a mission agency telling some would-be missionaries to bank on being taken in by the communities they are going to reach. This is Emmanuel. God with us, telling them, this is what you will do. And I find it interesting that Jesus doesn't give them addresses or even the names of friendlies whose houses they should be sure to go to. And they'll be taken in as they go to reach these communities. The broad principles are what Jesus gave them to guide their decisions. And those principles are these. Number one, the first people to welcome you into their home, stay there for the entire time you're in their town. Now, I don't know if there was something cultural that made that a given, or made that a necessity. You know, like if it was an insult to be invited into a home, and then a couple of days later, maybe you get a better invite at a bigger home, nicer food or whatever. And so you take that. I don't know that. 
or if it's just supernaturally arranged details that Jesus had taken care of in advance. I rather suspect it was that. The second principle relates to how long to stay in a community if what Jesus tells them is honestly understood by people outside of a Jewish culture. And I'm referring to us because, again, we're talking about Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And if we understand what is being said here, it ought to make our heads turn, even with a bit of a scowl. Jesus commands them in verse 11 again, And any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. Not, you know what, if, if uh, guys, if, if this isn't working out, you know, if you're not making a real hit with the people, you just need to be more like me. You need to wash more feet. You need to get more cups of cold water. You need to sweep more steps. You need to, no, he says, look, if they don't receive what you're given, turn and shake the dust off your feet. Now, why, what does that mean in, in, the, in the day, and what did it mean to the Jews? Well, you see, the dust, first of all, of unbelievers was ceremonially defiling to the Jews, such that when the Jews would even leave their, uh, their, say, their town, and they happened to have to wander through or wander into non-Jewish territory, when they were coming back home from that, they would stop at the border of their area, and they would just sit there and make sure that they got all that Gentile, unbeliever, non-believers in Jehovah, dust off of themselves, taking off their sandals, whap, 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 watch the cloud of the Gentile dust stay on their land, and then enter undefiled unto Jewish territory. And you see, Jesus commands them to do this very public demonstration, saying essentially this, we have warned you, or at least tried to. You don't want to hear what we have to say, and so we are innocent of your lost souls, and your consequences shall be upon you, and you cannot blame us, and you cannot tell God, well, you never knew. This little ceremony, by the way, didn't originate with the disciples. This isn't something that they did because, you know, they had to do something to get the frustration out of them because of people trying to deal with people and tell them the greatest news in all the universe and dealing with them with their recalcitrant hearts or hardened hearts. This, rather, is from God himself. And to paraphrase it pretty accurately, he's saying, look, don't waste your time on those who don't want to give you an ear. Why? You are to move along because there are people who are dying to know that there is hope from above. If this sounds a bit impatient or harsh, let me undergird this with the word of God as recorded by Luke in a very similar, although different, vignette. The sending out, not of 12, but of 70 in Luke chapter 10, verse 1. I'm going to abbreviate this from what I read this morning. So if the video cue is up, I'm coming in. I don't know how many cues later. (laughs) Whatever city you enter 
and they receive you, eat what is set before you. See, the instructions are basically the same. And heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets, meaning be very public about this, and say, even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you, yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And just in case the communities don't get the seriousness of that, Luke continues, I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city that rejects you. What was the fate of Sodom? God's divine destruction upon it by brimstone and fire. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which were two very recalcitrant, very stubborn cities, he says, if the miracles were performed in them which occurred in you, they would have repented. Even they, as hard as they were, would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to hell. Wow, this is Jesus! Doing missions. He, boy. Not very politically correct. Not very spiritually sensitive by today's social mores. When the truth is proclaimed and it's received, it brings life. Not just physical life, but the Jewish idea of shalom, which encompasses everything, past, present, and future, with a consummate, God-filling invasion of every aspect of your life. But when truth is proclaimed and it is rejected, it brings death, not just physical death, but the antithesis of all that shalom or real life is. Which means every single gospel proclamation every single gospel proclamation of every single witness of Christ is a two-edged sword the one edge is salvation if accepted life the other edge if it's rejected is judgment The universal church, all true local churches throughout history comprise the universal church. And who comprises the local church? True believers involved in those local churches, part of the universal church. And that entity of God, when God established the church designed the universal church throughout the ages, working through the local churches, working through the individual followers of Christ to bring about the totality of the Great Commission, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It is not necessarily incumbent on each little bitty local church 
to feel that pressure, that burden, that compulsion, that misplaced priority when there's other bigger priorities of reaching even their own Jerusalem that come into play. I presented this very reluctantly uh, at one of our what are called NIDA modules, New England District Association modules of, of uh, New England pastors and all. And sometimes I like to just go figure, stir things up a little bit. And I thought that this whole idea would be pretty controversial. And to my absolute amazement, when I was all done, to the person, to the pastor and the New England District superintendent himself, they all just said, had no problem with it whatsoever. And they went, huh, yeah, I get it. Okay. So I took a little bit of a deeper breath that was cleansing and refreshing feeling affirmed. I hope this isn't confusing. I hope you make no mistake about what the local church's role is in the Great Commission. It is simply to be ready and available to the Lord God on high to do the bidding of His work. Whatever that happens to be, whatever the season, whatever the epic, whatever the resources are starting in our personal lives and moving outward. Let me ask Scott. Scott, are you here? You are here. Scott is one of our elders here at Faith. We close our time in prayer. Before I close in prayer, Bill, I have a question. I have a mercurial question for you. Okay. Any of these doctors you've been seeing about skin problems and blood, did you tell them about claims of mercury in science? Actually, that's an astute question. I was tested for heavy metal poisoning. <laughs> Thanks for taking my back. Glad, glad I cleared that one. <laughs> uh, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, your your command to us, and indeed it, it can be complex and it can be daunting. It can even seem daunting to go out and share the glory that you've revealed to us, and, and yet we know that you'll give us the wisdom and you'll give us what we need to to do that for you. Lord, give us faith and in that process, a faith that's never presumptuous about you or about your provision for us, but one that is full of confidence. Thank you for including us in, in your, universal church, your universal church in the calling of the Great Commission, for it's in your great name that we pray, Christ Jesus. Amen.